Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. This is Nick, um, and this is a really, really interesting episode for us. We were so excited. We are joined by Jonathan Dickinson and Dimitri Mujanis, who reached out to us actually and said, you know, sent us an email and said, hey, we're listeners of your podcast. We're big fans. Um, this is the kind of stuff that we work on, and we are wondering if you would like to collaborate. And they sent us some articles they had written um, in various publications. And the one that really stood out to us is they have an article, which we will link in the show notes, along with so many other resources uh, in Salon, titled How Psychedelic Drugs Are Used as, tool, as a Tool of State Violence. Uh, and the subtitle is, There's a Long Racist History of Psychedelic Drugs Being Used to Repress and Oppress. And this is a topic that Jared and I basically are completely ignorant on, though uh, interested in. And so we uh, had a back and forth with Jonathan and Dimitri uh, and got on a call together and really, really just had interesting conversations that we were super, super excited about, Jared and I, uh, all four of us, really. And so we finally came together and recorded a series of two episodes surrounding this topic. The first one is this episode which is essentially uh, sharing the title of their Salon article, us exploring how psychedelics uh, have been used in the past by the state to oppress and why that's important uh, for the psychedelic movement now and why that historical context is important uh, really to explore the liberatory potential of psychedelics, which is the topic of the second episode in the series. So the potential of how psychedelics could be used uh, sort of to challenge capitalism and in kind of a revolutionary uh, way. So without further ado, this is the first episode in our series with Jonathan Dickinson and Dimitri Mujanis. This is Nick. This is Jared. We are joined here today. We're so excited to be joined by Jonathan and Dimitri to help us talk through this very, very exciting topic. So why don't you guys uh, take some time to introduce our listeners to you and uh, sort of your background in this area and what brought you to wanting to do this episode. Right on. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. We're both big fans. Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, I'm Jonathan. I've been um, working around psychedelics since like very closely since about 2009 i came down to tijuana where i live now to work at an ibogaine clinic and so that's where i work now we administer ibogaine in sort of a medically supported setting and for the most part what we're doing is helping people detox off of heroin um, methamphetamines uh, other kinds of drugs and people look to Ibogaine and Iboga for a lot of other reasons. But that's why I'm here. I mean, I, I came largely for my own healing, uh, my own kind of spiritual exploration at the same time. When I was in, in high school, I was reading a lot and kind of getting exposed to a lot of anarchist ideas and um, started writing some things that my teachers didn't really like and sort of got associated in a way at the school where um, things got laid out in front of me with the, with the school cops and they, they kind of um, made, made a lot of fuss that put me in some, some trouble for a while. And one of the results of that was actually um, more or less directly, I got put on psychiatric medications. Mm -hmm 
kind of to try to placate the authority figures in my life. And it took me a long time to try to heal from that afterwards. Like I wasn't, I wasn't depressed going into, it. I was just kind of pissed off. And then afterwards I was really struggling. So psychedelics yeah. were what helped me a lot. And so I've also, you know, part of the reason for coming down to Mexico was after a really brief stint working in drug policy, I realized I just wanted to be around it and work around it. And I didn't want to wait for the state and actually kind of have a lot of um, hesitation about moving things into legal frameworks, not only mm -hmm. given the state of like the insurance schemes and how healthcare is provided, but just the, the state interests in, in general. So yeah, it's one of the reasons why um, we li very close listeners to your guys' podcasts. And awesome. So excited to be, yeah, excited to be having this conversation with you. Cool. Dimitri. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, hi, guys. I'm, I'm Dimitri. Um, thanks, Jonathan. Also, uh, really happy to be here. We're fans. We're fans too. We'll just throw that in. We're fans too. Like we're gonna link. We're gonna link an article that they or well, a couple of articles that they've written and stuff in our in our notes. So yeah, we're fans too. Right on, right on. So um, what got me into psychedelics was um, you know people call them plant teachers and was two other plant teachers, uh, uh, Poppy and Coca. Um, and uh, you know I was born and raised in Detroit. Uh, I'm 59 years old. Grew up in a politically leftist Greek American family. Also grew up with all the stuff that was happening in Detroit in the 60s and 70s. And um, drugs were everywhere. Um, uh, everyone was doing it in some way. Um, I, um, I had some incredible experiences with drugs as a young person. I was also experiencing um, uh, some difficulties, particularly around uh, the home and economic difficulties. And then uh, being what they would call now dyslexic uh, and uh, being put in the dumb class. So between, uh, which was kind of a, which was kind of a, a, a blessing because I, I, you know, my dad sort of was, was an anti-authoritarian type of guy, except when it came to us, I guess, but, <laughs> but like at least state authority. And so, uh, and then experiencing uh, being other um, uh, and then being other just sort of in a, in a, in a black city, but, it, but in a positive way. Um, so, um, but I got involved with drugs. Um, I was a musician, uh, performer, uh, very politically aware. Uh, my parents were leftists, not liberals. So, um, and I come from a tradition of that. Uh, uh, Nick, there's a relative of mine um, buried in Spain. Uh, ah. he, was, he, was, he was in the Lincoln Brigade. Oh, wow. Uh, his picture, yeah, yeah, his, he was an immigrant. His picture was always up. So that was in the house. But what happened was, um, Drugs helped to expand my life, and then it made it really small. When heroin and cocaine sort of took over my life, I moved to New York City. I became, you know, involved in Lower East Side po politics and music. Um, got to meet a lot of the people I, I read about, and got to be friends with some of them. And my life was expanding, but then I, it got pretty small. Um, I think one of the things that happens with um, people who get, uh, you know, have a, have a problematic with relationship with drugs, particularly those of us who are, um, who are sort of rebels or revolutionaries as we, it's sort of a revolutionary re rebellious act. And then we're, we're sort of diminished and become the ultimate consumer. So by the time uh, I'll fast forward over many years, I, 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 my, I was 
back in Detroit from New York. Um, my common-law wife was dead, pregnant. Uh, all my friends, many of my friends were dead. Many of my friends were going to prison. I was turning 40. I had a $200 a day cocaine and heroin habit, also going to the methadone clinic. So I was a complete um, uh, slave to the states, you know, having to show up there every day. And I had known about this thing called Ibogaine. And for those of you who don't know, there's probably plenty of folks who don't. Ibogaine is an alkaloid or a boga of a boga from Central Africa, from Gabon. Um, it, it has been used in a tradition called Bwiti for, for hundreds of years. Um, and it is a powerful psychedelic, um, a, a, a sacrament. One of the properties is that it returns folks to, uh, well, it interrupts physical addiction, physical dependence on opioids uh, without withdrawal, but it is a hell of a three or four day journey. And um, it is probably the highest threshold psychedelic in that it needs to be medically supported. Anyways, I went to Holland as a last, as, uh, you know, I was stuck in Detroit, living in my parents' basement. My first thought in the, in the morning was to kill myself. My last thought in the evening was to kill myself. I was working as a valet, parking cars. My artistic life was kind of over. My political life was just sort of raging inside of me. And I think that has to do with my use anyways. I was growing up, growing up in a lefty household, guys. It's kind of like growing up in some ways in a fundamentalist household. That's a whole other thing we can get into. I mean, there was a clear enemy. There was, there was sins, you know. I mean, I think about every cup of coffee I drink, maybe I should, but that was sort of ingrained in me. And 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 then also, uh, well, I can get more into that, but I'll, I digress even more than I am now. So um, what I, sort of a last step state, last ditch effort, I'm Greek American, like I said, I wanted to go to Greece. I couldn't go because I had this habit. My wife had just died a couple of years before. And I thought, well, I'm gonna try this thing called Iboga, began that I heard about on the Lower East Side from activists like Dana Beale and, and some of the people that were a group called Missing Foundation, which was a noise group, an anarchist noise group involved in the Tompkins Square uprisings and stuff like that. I, I heard about it and that sort of mail you, I'm gonna go try this thing. And then I'll just go for, cause it was in Holland and I'd go to Greece. My family didn't have a lot of money back then. I think it was $1,500 back then, everyone chipped in. I figured they might as well try. And then I would just go to Greece. And my idea was I'd come back and die. And what I did is when I got to Holland, which is like Mecca for heroin addicts back in the early 2000s, this was 19 and a half years ago, I, I ingested the sacrament of a boga. And um, I had four very difficult days um, uh, detoxing and incredible um, visual experiences where I was able to see my ancestors, to see the future guys that were, you know, uh, and I could go into detail on that. And, uh, and then also, you know, so to see, you know, uh, um, uh, to, to review childhood trauma, uh, sexual and physical abuse, and, and um, to come out on the other side not wanting to use. So it was kind of a miracle. Um, and I, uh, and then I went to Greece for three months and a lot happened there. And I was, uh, I was sort of on fire with this zeal to spread this, to, to everyone. Now, what, you know, and the three months in Greece was really essential and I, I got to see who I was, I got to chill. Um, I came back and uh, it is a felony to distribute, to use Ibogaine in this country. Um, and uh, my, my mission was to, to get this to folks. And, I, and that was, a, 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 I started to administer it after a couple of years, I became friends with Howard Lutzoff, who was the, sort of the father of the Ibogaine movement. And I did 500 um, uh, sessions underground, uh, although I was very public with it. Um, 
I eventually was initiated into the Bwiti and returned to Central Africa six times. And um, so I am an initiate. Um, and I'll just really fast forward and sort of echo what Jonathan said. I was also involved in the harm reduction movement, which you know, saved my life when I was using, and then I began to work in it, and I was also very involved with drug policy. I uh, am at the point now where I think that some of that work around drug policy was in fact a waste of time um, because we're still talking about the state. And this idea as an anarchist that if you legalize something and it's put into the market, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> I don't know how I fell for that shit, but I did. So just Google Sackler and you can see that that's not the deal or, or look at the lynching in, in Staten Island where someone was uh, strangled to death for selling illegal drug uh, cigarettes. Um, so um, I uh, was eventually arrested by the DEA, which uh, they arrested me for detoxing uh, in the sting operation for detoxing an addict or a drug user with no sense of irony. And I went through a long legal process was eventually, um, I didn't have to do any time, but that sort of set me on another path. I, I now work in, um, in harm reduction, sort of as a, uh, a, in a wellness center for active drug user sex workers, formerly incarcerated, working with former members of the Young Lords as our elders and, and other activists. Um, and I also do, uh, I, I don't really work with Aboga anymore, but more MDMA and psilocybin outside of the country. That brings us up to now. <laughs> and I've been working- <laughs> That's a hell of a story. Uh, <laughs> I did it quick, guys, I hope. Yeah, and I, I, I know we only got the Cliff Notes version, right? <laughs> I, I've been working with Jonathan for, for quite a while. Um, uh, we, 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 we've been writing together and uh, doing some organizing together. We sort of see, and then we, 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 were in a, a, we had a center in Costa Rica together for a while as well. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for that. Um, clearly, you both have a background and a passion for this topic. And uh, like we've all discussed, Jared and I are sort of novices in this world. Um, so we are really, really excited to have the both of novices you sort of- Novices is generous. I'd say completely ignorant, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to lead us down this path and really have this conversation of how psychedelics, its relationship with the state and state violence and uh, et cetera. So if you guys wanna kick us off and head us down the path, uh, we are ready and excited. Okay. Well, I mean, we've both felt that psychedelics have a huge healing potential, a huge transformative potential for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe at the beginning, I don't know if I want, I don't want to speak for Dimitri, but definitely for myself. And I, and I know I've seen this in other people too. Sometimes we come into it having had these really big experiences and kind of expecting that that's what they are and that that's what would happen for anybody who took them, that they would have these same kind of revelations. And so I think one of the maybe most important frameworks to kind of look at them through leading into this conversation is as non-specific amplifiers. So that means, you know, that it's not just that they're amplifying this experience of peace and love and unity and transcendence, but that they can be also leading us down other paths or find other uses as well. And so, you know, that's in one of the articles that we've done, we sort of looked at some of the historic examples of that, like the, the Aztecs, the Vikings, there's one of them, the really good examples is the Nazari Ismaili state, which was a religious order of quote unquote assassins. It's actually where the 
the term assassin comes from is related with hashish. It's supposed to be this order, this small inner circle that was employed to carry out espionage and assassinations of key political figures at the time. So they were, they were famous for fanatical bravery and never attempting to escape once they committed on a mission and this kind of cultish determination. And so there's sort of this um, association of that with the use of hashish, both as a tool for mental control and motivation amongst the, the administration of that group. So uh, this, is, this is one example, but there's, there's certainly others. I, I think we should also frame it in a context. I, I want to go back for just one second because, uh, yeah. and, just, and just say that what happened with me is just happened with me in terms of never wanting to use. And I had to put that out there. What we've discovered after working, I've worked with thousands of people, um, is that healing, what we call healing, is very specific. And we can cause a lot of damage by saying that this is going to be the result. The result that people were looking for, of course, they want to be relieved of suffering. Um, but we do damage by, by saying there's one result. And uh, most people don't have the results I have. It's a, it, and, and, and a lot of the violence and a lot of the damage that the state, but particularly the economic system, does to folks in wellness spaces and healing spaces is provide a one-size-fits-all and really to get us back to work. So I wanted to say that before we continued. Um, everyone's different. Everyone's mm -hmm. different. Um, and, and, and to contextualize, what, 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 you know, there's this image out sort of in the popular culture that this is peace and love. And as a non-specific amplifier, I don't know, Jonathan, do you know who came up with non-specific amplifier? I'm not sure if it was Stan Groff, but it, it, to, I've heard him to me, it's it, 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 it's the it's it's a really great um, a great uh, way of looking at this because the idea is at least in the popular culture is that you're going to take this thing this product and it's going to be it's going to create a shift in consciousness to make us all sort of you know uh, peace and love and uh, share the wealth. Um, it's it, when we're talking about like human suffering. We're really talking to a great degree. Of course, we're, we're born and we suffer. Of course, our culture has a lot to do with this. But right now, it's our economic condition. It's the, it's, it's the economic system that's causing us harm. So to have a product that does that, a product that will bring enlightenment. So our article about state violence, which is just completely ridiculous if you're going to take something. Our article about state violence is to really contextualize that. Because what's been happening in the mainstream psychedelic world, the so-called renaissance, is that, that there's this underlying idea that simply taking this, putting these medications, these drugs, these sacraments in the existing system will change it. And we know what capital does. Mm -hmm. It will morph any motherfucking thing, any motherfucking thing. And so what we did in that article in Salon was sort of lay out these uses for, uh, for uh, 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 historic uses for psychedelics and that might not have been, you know, sort of liberatory. I mean, to bring in some more modern examples, I think it's kind of important to look at, it was 1943 during World War II that LSD was first synthesized by Albert Hoffman at Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland. So it's right in the midst of World War II. And so although... 
like there was mescaline and ibogaine and other psychedelics that were known about but that event is sort of cited as one of the main events that led to the modern use of psychedelics just because of how kind of explosive lsd was in the consciousness but around the same time even right from the very outset of that sort of flowering open of of psychedelics in in modern consciousness 1944 we find kurt plotner who um was a department head at Dachau, was administering mescaline to Jewish and Russian prisoners during interrogation to see if it would work as a truth serum. You know, one of the nurses that he was working with was describing that purpose as to eliminate the will of the persons examined. I know in a year later, um, 1945, Plotner was hired by the CEA as part of Operation Paperclip, which recruited a lot of Nazi scientists. And so he was sought out because of that kind of work that he was doing and allowed to continue his interrogation research with protection from prosecution for any of his work. So this is, you know, sort of early roots, but we see the CIA having a strong interest in it. And that led right into the MK Ultra program. I don't, I'm, maybe you guys know something more about this than I do, but I know I do know that during the Korean War, the U.S. saw soldiers who'd been prisoners of war in China return demoralized and then with these communist sympathies. So they thought it was possible that Russia or China or North Korea had access to mind control techniques. And so MKUltra was conceived in response to that threat to try to develop their own. So between 1953 and 1962, MKUltra grew into this beast of 144 sub-projects at 89 research sites. And so the creator, Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's chief chemist, brought LSD into that. One of the, one of the first things that he did was spend um, $240,000 to buy the world's supply of LSD and distributed that to clinics and hospitals across the U.S. And so that was um, one of the things that MKUltra was, was doing, was incorporating really high doses of psychedelics into, into their research. So I just want to just add a little color to, to Gottlieb, who I think is a fascinating character. There's an interesting book called Poisoner in Chief that's about him. Um, I think it's a good book, but I think it's sort of the conclusion is you know, the conclusion you'd expect from, you know, bourgeois uh, press, but, um, uh, but a good book to read. Uh, he, he was a observant Jew. He was um, a vegetarian. Um, he was into yoga. He loved to trip, um, would take um, uh, vacations to India to feed the poor, uh, had a goat farm, sort of had a hippie sort of, you know, um, exterior life and also had a license to kill for the CIA and the, and the state and used it. And so I think he may, represents a really interesting character um, in, 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 just in, in terms of um, all, all those things and this. One of the journalists who covered Gottlieb, um, Stephen Kinsner, he said, Gottlieb wanted to create a way to seize control of people's minds. And he realized it was a two-part process. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. And second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. So he says, we didn't get too far on number two, but he did a lot of work on number one. Just 
on the blasting away of the mines. So some of the specifics, like one kind of interesting example is the NIMH Addiction Research Center in Lexington, Kentucky. And I mean, Dimitri and I are, were aware of it specifically because they did um, experimentation with Ibogaine on formerly opioid addicted black inmates. So that's sort of why, why it came up for us. But they, they also did a study, for example, um, looking at LSD effects on black inmates who were offered heroin as a coercive incentive for their participation, and then compared those effects to the effects on unincarcerated white people who were treated at the lead researcher's home in an environment designed to reduce anxiety. Really crazy. To give you an idea, just so you guys know, that that was one of two, um, um, only two existing drug treatment programs in the country. If you read about like sort of beatniks and jazz guys, they all went there. Um, uh, uh, William Burroughs' son, I'm blanking on his name right now, wrote a beautiful book about it called Kentucky Hand. So, So folks were coming in for drug treatment and were offered heroin, of course, black people. And I, I wanna make a comment, I just, just occurred to me, and I think it's my problem, a little bit of my problem with, with the book, Poisoner in Chief, in, in that it's, it doesn't really have that much of critique on the state. They, 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 when Gottlieb said that, um, there we go, I found it. Uh, warned that to create a way to seize control of people's mind and realize it was a two-part process. First, you blast away the existing mind, and second, you find a way to insert a new mind into the resulting void. We didn't get to too far uh, uh, on number two, but we did a lot of work on number one. So this is something to keep in mind as these drugs become mainstream, because if they're blasting number one, if number one is working, number two, we're walking in it. We exist in this. Um, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself in the conversation, but the, what, what psychiatry sort of in a, in a broad sense wants to return us to baseline. And baseline is, is, is Black Friday, guys. That's normal, running and stamping on your, on your neighbors to get a cheaper TV. So it's an interesting quote. I'm just looking at it in that part. So that just came up. So I wanted to jump in. Sorry if I ruined the narrative thread here, uh, uh, Jonathan. No, it's, it's true. I mean, one of the sort of frameworks that's come out of research recently is talking about the default mode network. So what they're trying to do is contextualize that that's what psychedelics do is they sort of blast open the default mode network. So it's a, it's a very similar sort of contextualization of mental illness and how to treat it and what they're looking for. Okay, so ju- just going back to the NIMH Addiction Research Center that you were talking about, Dimitri, it was one of the one of the big centers in the States for that. In the 70s, the ARC program moved to Baltimore and became the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So that, that's NIDA. And so even though that longstanding research program obviously violated research ethics, it's never been renounced by NIDA as it stands today or by MAPS or any other psychedelic research institutions. Maybe just talk about who MAPS is so folks know. Sure, yeah. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're sort of the more visible and, um, well, in some ways successful uh, getting psychedelics introduced to 
through clinical trials through the FDA and all that. So they're the ones that have been championing the use of MDMA to treat PTSD. Uh, so they're certainly not the only ones anymore, but they're still one of the bigger sort of heavy hitters. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them more and circle back. But I mean, just as another example of MKUltra research programs, like it was, it was an international program. So one of the other centers was at McGill University in Montreal. And there, Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron was a leading psychiatrist in his day and the director of the Allen Memorial Institute. So he wanted to find the root cause of mental illness, which he thought were unhealthy social patterns and to cure people through a process he called depatterning. So approximately 80 patients went through depatterning, which involved the use of barbiturates to put people to sleep for several days, then giving them LSD, followed by massive doses of electroshock therapy over the next few weeks. Torture. Yeah, it's wild. So in a, in a paper published in Comprehensive Psychiatry, Cameron described the method consisted essentially of the administration of two to four electroshocks daily to the point where the patient developed acute confusion, disorientation, and interference with learned habits of eating and bladder and bowel control. The patient may also show loss of a second language or all knowledge of his marital status. So essentially they're trying to return people to this infantile state and then see if they can rebuild them back up from there into happy, healthy workers. I mean, was this like a softer form of like lobotomy, like since that had already kind of like been drawn into critical inquiry? Yeah, they were talking about chemical lobotomies. Yeah, okay, all right. And they would keep people, you know, in isolation, in a diaper. If someone was incontinent, lost control of their bowels, they would consider that a positive step. Um, something that's very interesting about this, I should, you know, um, of course, capital uh, is most destructive to the most vulnerable folks. I mean, you know, people of color, poor people, women, gay people. But a lot, from my understanding, most of these, um, most of these subjects were middle class, uh, which would read upper middle class these days. Uh, uh, so they were professionals. They were anglophones in an incredibly. Um, um, anti-Franco uh, atmosphere. Uh, and a lot of them uh, were men. Of course, there were a lot of women who were, you know, his, quote unquote, hysterical. But um, it just shows um, just how um, the structure is not good for anyone. So just wanted to point that out. The CBC in Canada did a really well-produced podcast series called Brainwashed about those studies and that research. It's worth listening to. And, and, this, and this doctor was the head of, I mean, it was, wasn't just some, some schmuck. He was, um, he was, I forget, the head of the American Psychiatric Society or something like that. He was also um, present as an advisor at the Nuremberg trials around unethical medical uses. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, these types of, of, of research um, was, was done in hundreds of, of universities um, at the highest levels. I mean, talking about, you know, really great state universities and, and uh, well, it's at McGill. That's an Ivy right. for the, uh, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I was just going to interject. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be uncommon for people that, uh, of course, accuse Nazis or whoever of, of war crimes or ethical crimes or whatever to then like recreate those crimes later on. Like that happened a lot with like the colonial British and so on and so forth. I was just like, it's just very interesting that like if I'm doing it, it's OK. But right. Like we're going to accuse the bad guys. It's othering, as you've already said, Dimitri. So. Yeah. So some of this was happening in institutional settings like that. Um, but that certainly wasn't the only way it was going down. Um, one kind of colorful example is this Operation Midnight Climax. So that was in, in North Beach in San Francisco. So the CIA employed prostitutes to go and, and pick up Johns to bring back to these safe houses. Or they dose them with LSD and then watch from behind a two-way mirror and study the effects and, and see if they could gather intel that way. So the woman would just stay and talk with the men for a few hours. That's an incredibly to- colorful. I, what's the name of that cop? I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, I, the guy who they hired to do that, to sort of run the operations, I, I, Jonathan, if you could come up with it, that'd be great. If not, was sort of a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bad Lieutenant, the movie. It was sort of a bad, mm-hmm. bad lieutenant character. This guy was um, involved in, uh, as a narcotics cop, both federally and locally in New York. And he sort of specialized when he was in New York in, um, in, in, in he, was a, he was a terrible racist. He loved to bust, bust jazz musicians. The, the only, probably the best thing that ever came out of this fucking country. He would go after them. And then he went after, <laughs> you know, one of the most precious uh, <laughs> treasures that this country ever produced, particularly Billie Holiday to make her life a mess because she didn't like the fact this black woman was wearing furs and all this stuff. So he was really racist. And what he would do is he would bust these jazz musicians and then take their drugs and use them. He loved drugs. So he was completely strung out. He was very vicious. He was trained um, during World War II and then after to be an assassin and did all kinds. He sort of had free reign. Like all these guys were describing had free reign by the state to to do violence. So his thing with Operation Paperclip is he would sit behind a two way mirror in a, in a in a bathroom that and sit on the toilet with drinking martinis and taking drugs and watching watching these sexual encounters. So he's also a sexual sadist. Really fascinating character. I, so the name is George Hunter White. That's that, it, that, White. Yeah. That program, Operation Midnight Climax, it was specifically to study the effects of LSD on unconsenting individuals. That's what they were looking for. That's your tax dollars at work, folks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so another, I mean, these are just sort of really big, colorful examples that we have that we can talk about because in 1973 in the panic that followed Watergate the CIA director Richard Helms ordered all of the all the documents related to MKUltra to be destroyed so this is what we know about and it's likely that we won't ever really know the full extent of what experimentation was going on yeah and and by the way guys that's really unique I think it's the only time that's ever been done and and the conclusion of that book um poisoner in chief is that they didn't succeed so but they're like you know we heard that they didn't succeed so of course they takes the states they takes the states uh, uh, word for it but we know from observing what can happen in traditional cultures um because by the way those are people and they're susceptible like everyone else to our foibles around hierarchy and all, all kinds of ugly stuff um and, and sort of in the cult-like environments that we've seen um 
uh, these non-specific amplifiers can are very powerful, um, and they can tell a story. I mean, um, one of the stories they're telling now is that you can just be cured from PTSD. So we just give it to the soldiers when we come back. Um, and by the way, there's no program to give it to any Iraqis or Palestinians or, well, there's one program to give it to Palestinians, but it's with Palestinians and Israelis together, which I think is it's, it's like fucking so bad. It's like, a, it's like a joke, but the idea is that you can, you can simply take this stuff and recover from, from these things. Um, but I'm on digressing again. We can, we should probably talk about Whitey Bulger here. huh? Yeah. Yeah. Another really good example of like a non-specific amplifier here so 1956 bulger was in a federal penitentiary in atlanta and was enrolled in the mk ultra research under the auspices of they were going to be treating him for schizophrenia so he was given high doses of lsd daily for over a year and you know he's written about it he's written about it in letters he said he said he thought he was going insane he said that you know he'd committed crimes but the worst crime was what they committed on him. Anyways, you know, looking at his life later, 1965, after being released, he went on to have this illustrious and incredibly violent uh, mob career. And interestingly, also served as an FBI informant for a while. So, and and what, could, yeah. I mean, you know, can gets conspiratorial on that. I think there's, you know, if, if, if the FBI and the CIA were working on a way for mind control and to use people as informants, and I don't know, but it's a big, huh, <laughs> you know, to that one. So, huh. So there's all these examples with MKUltra. I mean, the CIA was interested in psychedelics in so many ways. Actually, when you look at what, what happened, Sidney Gottlieb, basically brought psychedelics to a lot of the intellectual class that kind of became proponents of the psychedelic uh, culture in the 60s. So you're talking about like Allen Ginsberg and Ken Kesey and Aldous Huxley and all these kind of famous artists and beats and stuff like that. So, you know, he's, he's called the unwitting maybe, but uh, godfather of the, the psychedelic counterculture. And guys, you know, you, you all know this, that the CIA has got its fingers in all kinds of shit, including abstract expressionism, the Paris Review, um, uh, several writers, whether they knew it or not. So this could be, um, uh, you know, there's, there's the, sort of the pinking of, uh, of the CIA right now by, you know, with those advertisements with gay folks talking about being gay, gay people of color talking about being in the CIA, this or the greening of Israel with cannabis. This might be the paisleying. I don't know if that works of, of, mm -hmm. of, of American culture. This, this stuff, even if, even if we got into some of our cultural heroes, some of us, I love Kinsey, but he, you know, he, he got a sort of indirect, the reason he was working in a mental institution for those, you know, Ken Kinsey should also look it up for those who don't know, but he wrote this beautiful book that was sort of a, an indictment on, 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 on the, uh, on the mental health and the, the sort of a, um, punitive aspects of, of, of institutionalization in this book called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he was working at that place so he could have access to the acid, which actually came through CIA. Yeah, so they had their, their hands in all kinds of areas of the psychedelic counterculture. Um, one example is, so the counterculture sort of narrative is that one of the big 
ways that psychedelics came into collective consciousness was this article in Life magazine by this banker named Gordon Boston who went down to southern Mexico and he and his wife were sort of introduced um, in Pueblo de Jimenez by Maria Sabina to magic mushrooms and so his story sort of exploded and eventually told, all of the I'm sorry that? John, I think you can tell folks who Maria Sabina was yeah, Maria Sabina was a, a traditional Mazatec healer. And so, I mean, she sort of became icon, iconized by, is that how you say that? I, she, she became an icon for the psychedelic counterculture. Um, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, you know, everybody went down to, to Wildla. They kind of, the town kind of became overrun. So uh, in her town, she kind of became a bit ostracized and her family had a lot of, a lot of trouble because of all the attention and complications that that brought um, for, you know, basically turning on the sixties the, the in some ways, but, you know, the CIA also funded Gordon Wasson to visit Maria Sabina and, and do continued research with her. So they, they were, they were really everywhere. And the way that it got into the into Life magazine, that was Henry and um, what's it, what was the wife's name? The Luce family, which were the owners of uh, and uh, the publishers of, of of Time magazine and Life magazine, which back then I, I don't know if there's an equivalent now, but millions, tens of millions of people would read that, and they were known sort of as uh, Rockefeller Republicans, which. You know, it means, that, it means that they're on the liberal wing of it, which would means that they would, uh, they'd probably be on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party today, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, true story. So, I mean, I, I think that's, again, like those are really colorful examples from MKUltra. And there's obviously, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on around the same period. Um, you know, there's, there's even really interesting research happening with psychedelics. Like, people doing really, really good work. We're going to jump in, Dimitri. Yeah, I want to say that a lot of that stuff that, you know, people say, well, then it ended. But you can see the continuation in, 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 in what we know happened in, um, uh, what do they call them, dark, black sites, dark sites? Uh, um, what's the name of that? Where they, where they were just, in Guantanamo, for instance. A little bit that's seeping out we see some of the same practices that, um, that were developed. And there was also really great research, great research around, around alcoholism um, um, and um, addiction and depression, of course, all done sort of in, you know, within uh, the uh, economic and uh, in the economic and the philosophy of uh, the cold war. So, um, but it's, uh, it's striking for us that the the new psychedelic renaissance and Jonathan, uh, maybe you should talk a little bit about Leary and those folks right now, and then we can get into that part, right? Sure. I mean, Leary and and Richard Alpert and the other researchers at Harvard are interesting because they started as these sort of buttoned up academics and then became counterculture kind of symbols in and of themselves but in the 60s when they were still at harvard it, you know they they did some interesting research and you know you also see this kind of tendency towards 
some of the same state-centered interests that you know we're we're kind of pointing to less about over violence but one one example being they did lsd research with prisoners attempting to measure reductions in recidivism um, <laughs> which you know there's a big movement movement in a big there's a movement in brazil which iowa where ayahuasca is 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 traditional to do it in, in prison with and, and with good results but the idea is that you give someone acid or 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 or, or mushrooms or, or ayahuasca and uh, in this case ayahuasca and they go back to the favela and somehow they're not inclined to eat i mean it's kind of an absurd thought it's the idea that we treat the symptoms of capitalism and racism and patriarchy and homophobia and all that and send people right back into it and somehow that will change the structure right and it's a it's sort of a dangerous thought um you know leary uh, and we'll talk a little bit about his later years but if you, I, I watched the interview i think it was from 66 or 67 on the buckley show william f buckley had leary on and if you watched him in that if he wasn't manipulated he was the perfect spokesman for the depoliticalization of, 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 of youth. And he was saying, simply take these drugs, don't get involved in the politics, you know, learn love. And I mean, you know, this is clearly a privileged fucking guy. Harvard, he had the privilege to leave Harvard. That's a big fucking privilege to say fuck you to Harvard, right? But like this guy is saying that basically no political consciousness um, uh, and take these drugs um, and the dropout part of it, the tune-in part of it, was some sort of, some sort of, you know, you know, tuning into like the self. And the dropout part of it was dropping out, and in terms of dropping out of organizing and struggle, what we call struggle. He later was politicized when he got locked up <laughs> and, and was and was liberated. But like uh, Abby Hoffman says, uh, a yippie is a hippie that's been beat up by the cops. So it's, it's amazing how that changes so fast once your entire life becomes politicized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, it's really interesting, depending on which side of the, the discussion that you're on around psychedelics, Leary is either sort of celebrated or demonized. So by, by a lot of the sort of research institution now, Leary is seen as this um, kind of like, perfect example of what not to do and you know to try to avoid the the trappings of the past we need to avoid you know any anything that would be associated in that direction but the reality is i think a lot more closely um something like like in the six in 66 when lsd and other psychedelics started to get prohibited um the perception is that's when that's when the research was stopped. Um, and that was as a reaction to what was going on, visible in the counterculture, but in, 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 in other countries as well. But it, in reality, it didn't really stop the research. It sort of gradually tapered off in part because of just fading interest and will. And then also because there were other legal changes that altered how psychoactive substances were approved by the FDA for medical treatment. So people stopped sort of seeing the, the avenue. So it wasn't necessarily that kind of intense crackdown, but that narrative is certainly being. Um, it's a bizarre sure. narrative because, because the, the so-called psychedelic renaissance and, you know, by the way, it's, 
there's a renaissance maybe in research, renaissance in bourgeois culture and, and in the power structure, but don't call, call it a comeback as to quote the song, because we've been here for years, we're still fucking doing it, you know. Um, but the, the narrative and the renaissance, the sort of bourgeois uh, reemergence of the use um, is that it got out of control because of these crazy fucking hippies. No mention of, of Nixon's war on, on the people, on black people and, and the left. Uh, it's black people, and we've always got to remember that it's not really talked about much because we don't talk about these things in our culture because we know everything can be absorbed except a direct attack on the shit, right? And, and what they were going after is not just black people because they didn't like black people, it was a tool, a tool for capital, a tool for imperialism, but also attack on the left particularly the freak left. And so now the narrative picked up by maps and other bourgeois institutions is that that's what went off the rails. Some hippies fucking did this, not the fucking apparatus of state that was destroying Southeast Asia and the rest of the fucking world. Right, it's sort of like the story is right that these individuals got out of hand with their usage and distribution and so forth when like completely ignoring the history of MK Ultra and like other government institutions that were completely off the rails for decades before, right, the crackdown. Yeah, that's I the mean, narrative of the state. That's that's right. how states craft narratives, right? Mm-hmm. That's- yep, yep. And, and by the way, the Renaissance sort of ignores this history. It's completely ignores it. Right. It, 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 it's literally actual Nazis. <laughs> I mean, just, I'm sorry, go ahead, John. Well, the, the term Renaissance is this hearkening back to this era of research that was interrupted. Mm-hmm. And what we're outlining is a large part of the institutional research that was going on at the time. And the same interests are at play. So, yeah, I think even the term of research, right? Like you said, the Renaissance now the rebirth, right, is that this research was stopped when there was a lot of progress to be made there. We're now picking that up and we're going to see the benefits. But when we're talking about the quote unquote research that was done in the past, I mean, the vast majority of it was like complete atrocities, you know. Same, it's that same notion um, uh, regarding the monopoly on violence, right? Like that mm-hmm. Weber thing, like the state, the state can purport purportedly advertise the ideals of like nonviolence and peace and we're, we're, we're peacekeepers and this is what we do. Right. Uh, but they have the monopoly on violence, just like in this case they would have, they wanted to have the monopoly on the use of psychedelics and the experimentation and research of psychedelics. Right. That's that monopoly right there mm-hmm. that it is those that take these things into their own hands. IE as Dimitri was saying, these hippies that are the problem. They're the ones taking it off the rails. That's what they're trying to insinuate when of course, ignoring their own transgressions. Right. I mean, it's the great hypocrisy of the state, whether we're talking about violence or whether we're talking about like psychedelics, that's what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And that can, thank you for that, because that's exactly what it is. And, the limitations of these of these medicines, these drugs, these sacraments, however you want to say it, and what is often ignored is that container in which we all live, that water in which we all swim, will is 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 more powerful without an analysis. So what I'm trying to say is, folks, take these drugs, have this great breakthrough, see the planet is in trouble, and wonder how we could get this to market. 
because, I mean, that's what we're talking about capitalist realism now, right? There's no other avenue. They see no other way because the narrative, the ethically constituted stories, am I losing this right, guys? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good shout out. <laughs> yeah. The ethically constituted story is that like there's only one way and that is, and there's only one legitimacy and we could point to a thousand illegitimate ways. Even the research now is based on Diagnostic Statistic Manual 5, DSM-5 which is a completely arbitrary, non-scientific tool that they have even said themselves. We outlined it in an article in Salon that we show sure you guys will put up. Mm-hmm. That is not an effective measurement, but it is an effective tool to keep folks, you know, good little clogs. And they're, you know, in line to, to buy the latest whatever. I mean, and that's the process, right? Sort of the roadmap for commodifying a substance is to completely systematize and put it in the discourse of science mm-hmm. so that it can be marketed most effectively, right? So like, I like your point about, you know, it must be analyzed, but analyzing it and sort of systematizing it takes away a lot of the impacts that it could potentially have. And so we're sort of we're taking away its main effect by commodifying it and putting it through the ringer, right? Putting it through the system so that it can be sold legally. To look, you know, and also to be put into this, into into the space of disease, mm-hmm. which which is like another huge, uh, you know, uh, mechanism for social control and oppression. So you're sick because you have trauma. I'm I'm okay with the trauma conversation, except it's become total. Mm-hmm. It's become total. And I don't want to digress too much because I could talk about that for a long time, but there's very little talk in psychedelics or in the general conversation. And I forget which one of you guys has also got a, is a shrink as well. or got a degree <laughs> in it. <laughs> is that you, Nick? Or, yeah, uh, only yeah, a bachelor's uh, degree, but yeah. In oh, okay, well, then, okay. Yeah. okay, okay. Okay, okay. So this, this idea that it becomes this individualized thing, right? Mm-hmm. That your trauma, and it's almost like a, I call it like a, a, an internal nationalism. I have this pain, I have this historic wrong, and I need all this space around it, and it's about me, and all this space around it so I can feel safe. Yep. And nothing can come into space to have a conversation around it. But what's, what's, what people aren't talking about so much is why this huge rise in so-called mental illness. Why is it like, I mean, just off the charts compared to ever before. Back in the day, back when Marx, although we don't totally dig him, but he's useful, right? Back when Marx was sort of in the conversation, you know, every all the therapists read it and took it seriously. There was a conversation around alienation. Mm-hmm. And that's completely fucking gone. Yep. Completely gone. And it's all about your own personal trauma. This is a neoliberal approach to healing. There's no common space. There's no, so um, I think I've gotten us completely off track, but uh, we can. <laughs> no, I love that idea. Sort of the individuation of, like you said, trauma and struggle associate combined with sort of the medicalization of as many symptoms as possible to really bolster the commodification of treatment, like as much as absolutely possible and to rein in as many substances as possible that could be used to treat these symptoms of these individuals uh, all the while 
sort of ignoring the fact that much of this might be caused, could be caused by systemic, just the system in which we live, right? That it's not an individual problem. It is, it's a communal issue for sure. Not necessarily related to to our specific topic here, but I do think people were talking about it during the eras we're, we're in right now. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we did the we did the series on Marcusa and the one dimensional man. Yeah. Um, right now for a future episode, I'm I'm working on who is this Desmond Morris and the stimulus struggle. He's writing about this time and and he's kind of talking about these similar things regarding alienation. So um, I do think some people were talking about it but perhaps not in the way that was ever going to be like fruitful. And I, I really appreciate what Dimitri said. Most of it was super individualized, at least mm-hmm. some of the more ones that I, I've been looking at regarding things like stimulus struggle, Marcusa, maybe a little bit more like Marx looking at more like grand sweeping discussions. But So, I mean, if we look at how all of this is kind of being repackaged now and how it's being sold, one of the biggest, uh, like we, we've mentioned them, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies so one of the biggest narratives that's been able to sort of take the the mainstream is prioritizing research on post-traumatic stress disorder and in particular a lot of their early research is focused on soldiers and other state agents such as police officers so from 2002 to 2010 MAPS conducted the first study on war and terrorism-related PTSD in Israel, which was a study that recruited uh, participants in direct partnership with the Israeli Defense Force. And and MAPS director Rick Doblin's collaborated directly with the the Pentagon. And so it's it's this consistent prioritization of, of state interest, but also this looking at how to sort of the the problems and the conditions that they're interested in treating are by those who are perpetrating the legitimate uses of state violence. Like it's how to, how to soften the the blowback of these quote unquote, the way it's perceived as necessary evils or whatever, but that's how, that's how psychedelics are being repackaged. And and it's being repackaged. It's interesting that you just, Something just came up for me, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. It's it's like another legitimizing of that violence, but that violence is so legitimate in our culture that the psychedelic movement has sought to legitimize itself, the sort of mainstreaming psychedelic movement, by a direct association with the with the purveyors of violence and their mm-hmm. suffering and their quote unquote PTSD. And it's actually really effective. Oh, you're treating the vets. I mean, right now they want to treat all the special forces. These are like the higher level. So you can't even argue with some poor guy from or, or woman from the, uh, you know, a working class person who has no choice. These are sometimes, you know, uh, Ivy League grads who come and do the specific dirty work of the state. And all their suffering is what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing, am I, am I getting ahead of myself here, Jonathan, then? The interesting thing, do we quote, um, oh yeah, we'll get there in a second. So I won't get, uh, 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 well, maybe we can jump into that, um, the Johns Hopkins guy. Is that, can I, uh, you know, why be jumping ahead too much, Jonathan? No, I mean, like we're talking about sort of overt violence in a lot of cases. And then we're also looking at how this sort of um, relationship between psychedelics and how they're being introduced into psychiatry is sort of tightening the the grip of 
psychiatry as a tool of social control in a lot of ways. So even that relationship between the psychedelic movement and it trying to legitimize itself, I think we're, we're feeling those pressures to sort of, and, and you want to read that, Dimitri? This is, this is a, a great, a wonderful, wonderfully useful quote that um, it's all kind of laid out for us right here. So this is Roland Griffiths is one of the sort of foremost researchers at John Hopkins School of Medicine, and they've been doing studies with psilocybin um, and so they wrote a, a think piece, I guess, in, in psychedelics and psychiatry that's called keeping the Renaissance from going off the rails. So his, he sums it up like this. If psychedelic research is going to avoid another period of prohibition, we must learn the lessons of the past. It is critically important that the medical and scientific communities be vigilant in opposing the conflation of science with larger cultural agendas, as occurred in the 1960s with the blending of psychedelics into the anti-war and other anti-establishment movements. The enthusiasms that attend such agendas should not be allowed to supersede the scientific and regulatory processes meant to carefully vet these substances and their application in a variety of mood and behavioral disorders. <laughs> oh, geez, this guy, he can write them, huh? <laughs> I mean, I just gotta say, I just, something's just jumped out at me. Like, it's gonna supersede his fucking research? Like, we don't want to let an opposition to imperialism and mass murder supersede the fucking research because science is in control. This guy's like the main researcher, a scientific researcher at John Hopkins. Don't get me started, guys. I mean, <laughs> and they're working on, PTSD for vets. Don't address war. Just patch them up and send right. them back out. Right. Yeah. But that's the positivist mindset, right? Like the people that, that subscribe to science is almost like what this like religious type type of reverence, right? If they get so compartmentalized that uh, they can't see like the meta picture or what if we're, if we're using the term systemic picture here, like it's, it's compartmentalized, right? They're in their own yeah. little field, their own little box. And this is what we're doing. Like literally taxonomizing, of course, um, not just in this case, like psychedelics, but like this, but like the process by which these things should be vetted. Right. And where, and their application is also then thus taxonomized without ever, ever actually like looking outside of uh, really the window. Have you guys seen, this is reminding me so much of the, it started as a podcast and then became a series on Amazon Prime. It is called Homecoming with Julia Roberts. Did you guys watch this? So this is exactly their program is, the show is a drama about this research institution that is experimenting with drugs on vets to see how fast they can essentially wipe their memories and get them back into the battlefield. It's exactly Whoa. what they're talking about. Well, well. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's kind of being ignored. Like, why is the Pentagon interested in it? Mm -hmm. Clearly, they don't take care of vets. I walk over them every day with signs, you know, asking for a couple bucks. So why are they so interested in this? They've got a lot of investment in a, in a helicopter pilot, millions of dollars worth of training. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think, I think it's also really telling that he would talk about psychedelics going off the rails. Mm -hmm how to keep it. Now, as a researcher, as a scientist, why does he fucking care? What business is it of his? Is he research or is it R&D? Right. He's coming up with a product to go to market. Yep. So, you know, I mean, um, we see this, this attitude um, 
this that um that Jared was just talking about, like you know, throughout our culture. I, you know, I think about meditation and fucking Sam fucking Harris. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's another example of it. Don't get me going. So I'll digress into that space in a second. I'm right I think there. that there's. I'm, I'm right there with you on 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 Sam Harris, Demetri. So we're good. <laughs> on that dude, not a fan, man. Not a fan. No way. He gets so, so many, much love. Right, and by, by so many people who I really like, you know, because he cloaks it, anyways, cloaks it in this, in this meditative sort of Buddhist space. But it's he's a he's a fan of imperialism. Oh, absolutely. I think there's there's so much this path that you sort of have brought to light, which I never it never occurred to me before of how the Renaissance is so much trying to align itself with the military, right? I mean, the mo- the biggest spender and perpetrator of state violence because like you mentioned it's the quote-unquote most effective or easiest path to mainstream adoption right it's if we can say we're treating the vets well no one would disagree with that right Um, but it just happens to be so convenient that these are the individuals and the apparatus that are committing just wild atrocities across the globe you know the external enforcing class exactly oh wow nice and also yeah. the biggest, the biggest polluter on the planet. Yeah, right. Yeah, they get a pass on that often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, very clear, obvious strategy. I think it plays out even not just in that kind of research or institutionalized setting, but even when we look at something like uh, microdosing of psychedelics, mm-hmm. which I don't think is very researched. I think it's sort of driven by just um you know sort of faddish news articles and things like that but the the focus is one on removing the transcendental or visionary effects of any of psychedelics in order to try to help people sort of fit better into their um you know their their workflow yeah the only the first time i heard about this i read an article and i don't know it was like some startup magazine right tech crunch or something or where someone in Silicon Valley wrote this piece of their experience with microdosing. And it's just, it's laughable that to, to co- this attempt to commodify this substance, like you said, to remove any kind of transcendental experience and purely make me a more effective worker. Like, I mean, just how asinine this whole process is you know, it's just mind blowing that people can't see through sort of just the the, the absolute spectacle of this and really just how this is becoming used purely for the efforts of capitalism. I mean, there's no way around it. You know what I mean? It's just fascinating to me and just mind blowing, really. But it's not unique. It's like it's 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 more benign stuff like caffeine used Mm -hmm. to get you geared up so you can get to work. Or for a long time, nicotine was like your brief reprieve during your like 15 minute break. Right. That's how it's being sold. Like, go ahead and reset yourself by going out and having a cigarette or whatever, but then come back and get get. you'll be ready to go again you'll be refreshed right right? like that so that you're ready to you know bust the tables or whatever yep exactly Mm -hmm. i mean one of the great things about lsd is that for 12 hours you're not doing anything Mm -hmm. you know probably not driving a car i mean i wouldn't recommend it but like you know you're just you're not polluting you're not you're just like laying there fucking looking at your toe so 12 hours of nothing 
you know. Which is just funny, the whole microdosing movement is to maintain the consumption of the substance, but make one be able to do something, right? To be productive, quote unquote. That's it. Right. That's it. Maximize That's productivity. It. Yep, exactly. You know, and we, we make this point in an article about Ibogaine, Jonathan and I, that one of the great things about this is to, how inefficient it is. That's mm-hmm. one of the healing aspects that, you know, I'm going to be sitting, well, when I sit with somebody, I sit with them for eight hours. And there's like two or three of us. And we don't know if it's going to really do something at the end. <laughs> right. we're, you know, I mean, it's so great, man. Like, it's just, I love how inefficient it is. And in the inefficiency, something can come out because we're talking about space. But that doesn't function at all in the scientific world, right? They want nope. very clear cut results where I need, you know, within a, at least somewhere in the 90% range that when I give this to something that X will be the result every single time, right? And, and, and we, we also sort of mentioned that in the research article in Salon, that the damage of that narrative, the mm-hmm. damage that I did when I became sort of a poster boy for Ibogaine, that, oh, and I really thought I was going to go out and just give this to folks and they'd have the same result. And I thought, actually, I also thought that was going to be some sort of revolutionizing process, which mm-hmm. I was completely wrong. I was doing detoxes and patch, the same kind of work I do in harm reduction, patching up folks that are being devoured by the economic system and the race system and all the other ugliness around us. But what the harm, the direct harm I did was saying that this was a result, mm-hmm. that not using the drug. And it turns out that's the maybe 20% of the people never use drugs again. But what else happens? This is the same damage that we're doing, the same we're going to reduce PTSD, which, by the way, was you know, a, a legislative and sort of political process where they, where, they, where they came to this diagnosis. If you want to look into the history of how PTSD sort of evolved, sort of necessarily for veterans and, and, and women and people who've been sexually harmed, they came up with this diagnosis so they could become visible, so they could become legible to the state, so they become billable, right? And so I was involved in trying to introduce that process. And in the process, I said, this happened to me. And a lot of the hype that we're seeing around psychedelics is that it's going to cure this. And it's simply not what happens. I worked with thousands of people, other really interesting things, other far more poetic things. I always say we need, you know, research is great. The reductiveness is necessary, but this is not a reductive experience. We need need the the inexactitude and precision of poetry. And that's more of what's happening. I don't know what's gonna happen at the beginning of of a session or a ceremony, but I do know if I state it, that this is, you, you have this and this is going to happen. I, I, I destroy the space of curiosity. And I think that's a lot what the state and what capital does. There's less time for curiosity. So we microdose to go to work so we can be more productive as opposed to pondering a blade of grass, you know, to talk about a very curious fellow. You know, I, love, and so, I love your terminology of sort of the unpredictability and inexactitude because it reminds me back to what you were talking about earlier about jazz right and how the system can't deal with that unpredictability and that inexactitude it needs to know what's going to happen it needs to control what's going to happen and control the narrative and be able to determine exactly what the inputs and the outputs are every single time because that inexactitude threatens its legitimacy legitimization and its monopoly right Yes. And jazz is a beautiful metaphor for the kind of work Jonathan and I do. Right. Because we have a structure and there's an improvisational quality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, some, uh, uh, 
you know, Miles Davis is going to cover Cindy Lauper. Like, oh God, I'm going to do this. And then what happens? Uh, these are Coltrane does. These are my favorite things. Mm-hmm. But what happens in the middle? of it? It's not Julie Andrews anymore. Something right. else is happening. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think if we were to try to summarize what's carried over into the Renaissance and what's happened, I think it would a big part of it would be this individualization of the problem, this de-systemization of the view of you know what we're problematizing, and you know in order to basically continue the the status quo, that's sort of the the target. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to get into the Elijah McLean quote there, but I think it's a good of... kind of like I think it's a good kind of like framing of like this whole kind of state and control and psychedelics portion of what we're talking about. I think it's kind of a good like closing framework. So yeah, I think we should get into it real quick. Yeah. Okay, um, I, I can't read that without crying, so I'm not yeah. going to read it. I mean, <laughs> this this story is what put Dimitri and I writing about state violence in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so this was a young, a young black man who was autistic and um, beautiful, beautiful young man and was detained by the police and was administered a, a high dose of, of ketamine while he was, you know, in that, in that process and ended up ended up dying um these were his last words so i can't breathe i have my id right here my name is elijah mclean that's my house i was just going home i'm an introvert i'm just different that's all i'm so sorry i have no gun i don't do that stuff i don't do any fighting why are you attacking me i don't even kill flies i don't eat meat but I don't judge people. I don't judge people who do eat meat. Forgive me. All I was trying to do was become better. I will do it. I will do anything. Sacrifice my identity. I'll do it. You all are phenomenal. You're beautiful and I love you. Try to forgive me. I'm a mood Gemini. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Ow, that really hurt. You're all very strong. Teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to do that. I just can't breathe correctly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that definitely kind of like, that's it right there. Right. Like that's that, that quote kind of encapsulates everything we've been building towards, right? Like the state control, um, monopoly on violence, monopoly on use of psychedelics, like that, that quote encapsulates it's all encapsulates it all. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. And yeah, just so contextually ketamine has sort of been put into the psychedelic space and it's the first legal one. And this was administered as a way of, of subduing this young man who clearly was no danger. Um, what jumps out at me at this particular reading is I'll do anything, I'll sacrifice my identity. And I think, I don't, I don't even know if that needs comment. It's- Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know if, I don't know how you can follow that up. I, I really don't, I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. we, we made the point in, in the article, the, um, you know, the, the protests that came out of the, the George Floyd um, killing as well um, were suppressed by, by police who were trained by the IDF mm-hmm. 
And so there's this, it's, it's just interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting looking at where the, the priorities have, have lied. And, and it is interesting that people have uh, specifically turned away from the term revolutionary towards, you know, more, I don't know, softer, softer language. But um, as far as we can tell, like the way that psychedelics are being introduced yeah, it's 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 sort of to minimize change almost. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. even it's I think it's to minimize. I mean, the quote by the researcher from John Hopkins, right? He's talking about how we have to make sure that these substances aren't used to challenge the establishment. But then when we talk about microdosing and et cetera, it's even to minimize the individual change, right? It's almost as if they want to take away any impact of these substances at all and just make them into commodities that they can profit from, you know? And, and actually that's what's happening now. The, 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 uh, you know, there's all kinds of, um, you know, I, I, I was on a, a phone call where someone mentioned VCs and uh, um, I, I thought they were talking about the econ. I mean, it's my age, my, maybe, but it, I really didn't know what VC meant, but like um, these venture capitalists and, and big money are all about this. They're, oh, 100%, they're pulling yeah. out, they're pulling out the long knives um, and opposing certain legislations that, I mean, there's a pretty damn good law passed in the uh, decriminalization thing in, in Oregon, but they're opposed to that even because it, 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 the Oregon thing will probably be the broadest interpretation of, of the, these uses that will ever come about because now, mm -hmm. now they're, they're paying attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, and also sort of a, a, a dictating of what, of what, um, of what constitutes healing so and a, the distancing and we're going to talk about some liberatory practices now the distancing i think is kind of interesting i mean it's sort of striking they want to distance themselves from the liberatory practice and never mention you know some of these suppressive practices that have been right? and, and and abusive and, and, and racist and everything else i mean with the coming down of all these statues and and conversation, there needs to be a conversation, maybe some apologies done by these institutions, but also the psychedelic institutions need to acknowledge that some of the stuff that we're going on is based on this. Right. So do we, do we have like, a, can we put like a little bow on like kind of like state control, um, the state control portion here of like, like the psychedelic movement? I mean, uh, yeah, you've taken us on an amazing journey, both your own personal journeys. And then of course the historical journey dating all the way back to Aztecs and Vikings and taking us obviously into the 20th century with MK Ultra and so on and so forth. Um, and even of course, into more recent events, like what's happened with Elijah McClain and of course the, uh, the George Floyd protests and things along those lines. Um, I don't know if it's possible what I'm asking for, but like maybe a little bit of a bow, like what are your, your kind of like final, I, and I don't know that your final is the right, right word I'm looking for, but like some, some concluding thoughts, I suppose, on, on the state and psychedelics. <laughs> I, 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 I know it's kind of a loaded question, but before we get into the liberation, because I know a lot of our listeners are going to be excited to hear about the liberation part as well, but kind of like, you know, just a little segue here as we transition. I would say that these are incredible tools for individual and collective change. But when someone goes into a, a, a psychedelic experience, it's recommended that they have some sort of analysis 
about because it might they, first of all they might be overwhelmed and not know what to do with it, and so you come in with a sort of an analysis of what's going on with yourself and you work on that. Without a deep analysis, we will and then and then conversations and actions in which to subvert um, the uh, the um, tendency of a domination by the state and capital, then we are doomed to that. So there are plenty, of, and what it can do, the thing to caution is that you can sort of get into this oneness space, this whole, this whole holistic space of like, you know, heal thyself and, and then we'll change the world. Yeah, we need to change ourselves, but we also have to look at historic, you know, this through a historic lens, how real change and evolution and revolution happens and have a, a critique of exactly what is going on. And that involves an economic critique a uh, political critique, a, a, a gender critique, a race critique, a sex critique, I mean, uh, and, a, and a class critique, uh, a class analysis. And without that, we will be operating under false consciousness. We'll think we're changing the world and we'll be calling it the work, but we'll be taking iOS lost on the weekends. Jonathan, what do you think? I definitely can't add anything to that. <laughs> <laughs> Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is incredibly important to sort of frame the use of these substances in their historical context and how they've been used by the state specifically, you know, throughout history. So that once we start talking about their liberatory potential or their potential to challenge the status quo and to make people think outside the box, I think that we have to, we can't ignore the oppressive and I mean just the atrocities that have been committed by the state using these substances as tools throughout history. I think it's a it's it's important for us to understand for sure, which I had no knowledge of before Jonathan Dimitri uh, really educated us on this for sure. So this is Nick again. That does it for this first episode in our series of two with Jonathan and Dimitri. If you're at all interested in this topic, I highly, highly recommend visiting uh, the show notes on our website, or if you're watching this on YouTube, the description of the video. Uh, our website's revolutionandideology.com, where you can find links to so many of the resources that we mention throughout the episode, uh, really that Jonathan and Dimitri mention, including a lot of their work. They've write, written pretty extensively on this topic. So if you're at all interested, I highly suggest that you, I mean, first off, check out the second episode in the series, but also uh, check out the lengthy list of related resources that we have. If you like this episode and you're listening to this in a podcasting app, uh, leave us a rating and a comment that will help us to find more listeners. If you're watching this on YouTube, like the video, make sure to subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment that will help us please uh, the YouTube algorithm. You can find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you really, really love what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. And thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, to our many uh, Patreon supporters that uh, keep us inspired and motivated to putting out content uh, as continuously as we have time for. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed this episode and check out the second episode for sure.